0: everyone, and welcome to Investing in AI. I'm Rob May. I'm a general partner at PJC. And this is a podcast where we look at AI, uh, its impact on products and markets, uh, both public and private. And uh, my guest today is uh, Rob Toast from Highland Capital. Rob, uh, thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob. So
0: let's get into it. I want to talk a little bit about this two-part series that you wrote in Forbes recently about the next generation of artificial intelligence. And and, and over over the podcast today, we're gonna to, we're gonna dig into a couple of things that you wrote um, and and talk about, understand how they impact businesses, etc. But one thing that I think most of our listeners have probably not thought about or heard much about is federated learning. So can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, federated learning, how it works, and, and what types of business opportunities is that going to unlock that, that really weren't possible before?
1: Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, federated learning is one of those fields that I think of within the world of AI that is not widespread in commercial deployment today, but that in the years to come will become increasingly important and, and eventually increasingly ubiquitous. Uh, so the, the high-level idea, and it, it's, a, it's a relatively new concept. Federated learning was, the idea was conceptualized and published uh, from Google in 2017. So it's, it's only been around for a few years now. The high-level idea is that generally when you train a machine learning model today, you have to have all the training data in one central place. Usually that's in the cloud. Uh, and you aggregate your data set, and then you can, you can train your, your machine learning model. Uh, and that's, the, that's kind of the status quo paradigm, but there are a lot of uh, categories, a lot of use cases, a lot of industries in which it's not possible to move a bunch of potentially rich data to a central cloud or other repository for privacy reasons, for regulatory reasons. Um, and so today uh, that data is just uh, uh, off, uh, not accessible in terms of being able to train uh, use it to train AI. Um, and so the, the original use case that, that the Google researchers kind of were working with was uh, data that's distributed on, on millions or billions of people's uh, uh, mobile devices on Android. And there's all sorts of interesting personalization you can do based on people's individual activities on their mobile devices. But for privacy reasons, Android's not able to, to send all that device back to the cloud. Um, so the, the core idea behind federated learning is rather than moving data to the cloud and then training a machine learning model on it, you leave the data on the edge where it resides. You don't move it from its, it, the location that it's generated. And instead, you send a bunch of versions of a model to all the many devices, you know thousands or millions of devices on the edge where, where different uh, pockets of data are stored. And you train a bunch of mini models at the edge and then you send those individual models back to the cloud, but not the data, just the models that have been trained on the, on, the, on the subsections of data. And then through a bunch of really sophisticated engineering that, frankly, is still being perfected, there's a way to combine all those miniaturized models uh, and partial models into one kind of overall model that functions more or less as if it had been trained on all of the training data at the same time. So that's, the, that's the basic concept behind it.
0: Interesting. So, could we use this? I mean, we just watched this—you um, know—this GameStop uh, stock debacle where it went way up, it went way down, and there's been a bunch of misinformation, I think, and confusing information about what caused that, right? Because nobody has sort of like a centralized view of all the trades, and there are people saying, "Oh, it's it's driven by Wall Street bets," um, and there's some people that are saying, "No, it was actually a lot of it was driven by hedge funds, and the hedge funds used the you know Reddit group Wall Street Bets as cover." Um, is that something you see it as a use case, right? Like a like a centralized clearinghouse for stock trades, where uh, you can you, you can you can look at the aggregated data without knowing who has what. And I, 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 is that right? Is that the kind of thing you would use it for?
1: That that is that is an interesting use case. I think you could you could potentially think about building something along those lines. I, I think a, a helpful way that a kind of framework that I have for it is. Um, People you people talk about edge AI and uh, typically when you hear people talking about running AI AI at the edge, it's uh, inference. So you know building models that are small enough that you can perform inference at the edge without having to to revert back to the cloud. And you could think of federated learning as also edge AI, but as training at the edge instead of as inference at the edge. So if there to, to your example around GameStop, if there were you know for instance a lot of, you know, decentralized pockets of data around trading behavior, and none of those individual owners of data felt comfortable sending their data to, to you know, away from the edge, but were willing to make it available to train a broader model, then perhaps, you know, there, you could come up with some clever way to build a model that, um, you know, that, that was able to provide insights about trading patterns.
0: So if you look at the big players in AI, if you look at the, you know, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Apple, Microsoft—I mean, who benefits from this? Uh, One of the things we've learned is that people are willing to give away their data. They like a lot of consumer data. We sort of don't care, uh, even if we should. Who uses it and what they use it for? Um, You know, like I think Apple has been perceived in some ways as being behind in AI, but but given their views on privacy and their uh, lack of cloud focus relative to. Uh, a Google or an Amazon or somebody like that, like is federated learning going to be as it grows? Is that going to be beneficial? Is it going to be a good thing for Apple or um, or who?
1: Yeah, great question. So the the first use case, the use case for which federated learning was literally invented is mobile. And so I think it I think it is highly relevant for Apple as well as for Google via their their Android subsidiary. Um, So I think there's a lot of active research happening at both of those organizations about how to basically uh, extract insights from all, the, all their many uh, mobile device users without having to ha- have those users' data leave their phones. Um, so that, that's definitely one use case. The area where you see the most activity, research, investigations, startup funding for federated learning more broadly is in healthcare. Um, and it's easy to understand why because there there is just such stringent requirements around data privacy, data security, data de-identification, um, and you know really strict regulations about being able to move data um f- from where it's generated. So probably the, the hottest industry from a from a commercial application standpoint is in healthcare, and there's a handful of company of startups mostly who are developing different versions of federated learning platforms for healthcare. And and this also very well could be an area that some of the big players that you mentioned get more involved is, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples of the world certainly have ambitions in healthcare. But the basic idea uh, at a high level that you see startups looking to build is some sort of federated learning solution whereby um, all the data that health systems have about their patients, um, which is highly sensitive data that can't that can't be moved off premise, um, but that holds a lot of rich insights for all sorts of different healthcare machine learning applications. Whether it's you know building a model that can um, that can diagnose conditions based on medical images uh, or, or a, any number of different healthcare AI applications you can think of, um, federated learning would enable for the first time researchers, whether that's other startups, or pharma companies, or academics, to to access that data that's that's stored uh, in a, in a distributed way at, with these health systems, and otherwise is not is not available for privacy reasons to be used to to train models. So healthcare is one area that I think in the near to medium term you will probably see the highest concentration of federated learning activity.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Um, Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about something that came out last year, uh, a model that came out of OpenAI, a language model called GPT-3. So there was a GPT-1 and 2, and and they were trained on a certain amount of natural language data. And GPT-3 is the biggest one to date. And people have estimated that it costs $10 million, maybe more just in compute costs to to train this model. And it's a really, really good model um, from what I've seen. So given some uh, you know, given some words, uh, given some text, it can finish the text, finish the sentence, write more of a paragraph. Uh, we're really starting to get to this natural language generation state where you can have an application and you can use GPT-3 to generate some language, uh, a blog post, uh, a Google AdWords campaign, uh, some a Twitter account, stuff like that. I think you and I share this idea that um, GPT-3 and, and, and the tools that will come after it, there'll be a GPT-4, maybe a GPT-5, depending on how good they get. Um, this will be a key piece of AI infrastructure, and, and it'll, it'll create many companies that are built on top of it. And so I'm curious, what, what types of things are you seeing built on GPT-3, either, uh, either in the market today, or what kinds of things do you think uh, are coming? And, and is there anything that people are already using it for practically?
1: Yeah, there's so much potential with GPT-3 as you as you outlined and and for those listeners who haven't seen some of some of the kind of example use cases of it firsthand, I would encourage you to check some of them out online. I mean, there's some pretty stunning demos basically of of people using GPT-3 in different creative ways and, you know, writing poetry that that really sounds like it was <laughs> it was written by uh by uh, you know, kind of in in the Shakespearean tone or uh, you know, composing business memos that frankly read, like, read like a human wrote them and and are are completely credible as, as a human created memo, or even, um, I, you know, I've seen some articles about GPT-3 that, that flow totally normally. And then you get to the end and you realize that the article is about GPT-3. It was also written by GPT-3. So it really is, you know, it's just an incredible testament to how powerful, predictive capabilities of neural networks can get when you are feeding them these massive data sets. In the case of GPT-3, you know, half a trillion words, it basically ingested the entire internet and learned really complex uh, correlations. But to your point around what are interesting use cases you're seeing, it's a good question. I think it's still still very much a nascent area. I think you and I and a lot of people expect that GPT-3 and its predecessors and, and its successors may serve as a platform for all sorts of different startups to be built. That ecosystem is, is still very early. And part of it is that OpenAI has said that it will make GPT-3 available commercially via API, um, but it hasn't done that yet, broadly. Um, so there's still some, you know, I, I think we're still early in, in that being rolled out, but a few areas I would mention uh, just at a high level. The first is just uh, existing NLP-based applications and ex- existing language AI based applications can can and will be supercharged by these sort of next generation transformer based mega models. So, you know, all sorts of applications uh, that involve a conversational interface, um, you know, chatbots, as, as people like to refer to them, uh, will just get a lot better. I met a company just the other week that is building basically a, what they think of as like a healthcare front door. Uh, so it's 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 an automated um, entry point into the healthcare system for people who can engage with this, with, uh, with this conversational interface and basically explain what their symptoms are, explain what their medical history is. And the AI is able to automatically route them to the right specialist they need to see. Uh, and, and that company was experimenting really heavily with GPT-3 just as, just as a way to make that, uh, conversational intelligence so much more powerful. Um, Another interesting use case that I saw that is basically I, I've never seen NLP capable of doing this before GPT three, uh, but there are a couple really snazzy demos about this that were that went viral online, which is basically uh, it, it supercharging no code or low code platforms. So the basic idea is that um, you can you can describe in natural language in you know in just in in simple words what sort of application or feature you want to develop. So for instance, like, you know, describe what the front page of your application would look like, or describe what you want a website to look like. And then GPT-3 is able to generate code in Python or or some other language that corresponds to what you described. And it it is incredible to see, of course, it's not 100% accurate, but it's incredible to see how uh, convincing the generative capabilities of GPT-3 are. And so I've I have started to see some no-code companies that are toying around with GPT-3 as a way to basically bridge that gap between natural language descriptions of some sort of application you want to build and, and actually producing the real code to build it.
0: Do you worry at all about this kind of capability in the sense that um, you know we we, we we just had this election that had a lot of rhetoric around it, around the fact that it was stolen and a lot of articles that were written about uh, voter fraud and and all this kinds of stuff. And do you worry at all that a tool like GPT three um, might be able to accelerate uh, the, the the whims of people that are behind these kinds of things? People that want misinformation. Um, I, I, I you know I'm an investor in a company called Omilus, and Omilus tracks misinformation that's done between countries. Right? You know things that Russia and China do to us, things that we do to them. Um, you know, is this just gonna it, make it so
1: that we can't trust anything? It, it is something that I worry about a lot. Definitely. Um, for sure. I think, and yeah, we, we may touch on, we may speak about deep fakes later on, uh, but I think more, you can kind of generalize this category to generative AI more broadly, whether it's language that's being generated or images or videos, kind of AI moving beyond just interpreting existing data to actually creating its own novel sources of data and media. And there are a lot of interesting positive use cases that, that we can talk about. But but also, I, I think a lot of really destructive, dangerous use cases that unfortunately feel inevitable. Uh, and so I do, you know, I, I do think that, you know, you, you pointed to this broader trend of misinformation of, um, you know, make it being increasingly difficult to tell, especially online, What's real from what's not real, and and I do think this technology is going to accelerate a, a move in the direction of uh, you know a, a world that is increasingly post truth. Uh, and you know people people talk about the phrase reality apathy, or basically it, a state in which it becomes so difficult to tell to to differentiate between what's real and what's not real that you individuals are are kind of just compelled to you know listen to what they want to listen to believe what they want to believe and and it just it becomes really hard to to differentiate i don't i think that we are moving swiftly in that direction i think that you know gpt3 if you want to is is still you can still trick it you can still you know identify pretty quickly that it's not a human and similarly with with some deep fake images that we can talk about you know the the these ai these ai capabilities are not quite at parity with what humans are capable of doing but it is getting really close. And so I think, you know, I think that there, there will not be one silver bullet, but there's a lot of different approaches we need to think about from a technological point of view, from a regulatory point of view, from a from a public understanding point of view to try to combat this transition to sort of a more post-truth reality.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. that, And that ties into one of the predictions you made for 2021 in, in one of your articles in Forbes. And, and you predicted that uh, that this year a political deep fake will go mainstream in the U.S., causing widespread confusion and misinformation. Um, and it is it is amazing how good these things are getting. I, um, I don't know if you remember one of the early things that went around was like a YouTube video of like a horse that was made to look like a zebra or something like that. And I, you know, in the newsletter that I write, this was like two years ago, I linked to it and I said, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be problematic. And, and a bunch of people responded and were like, this is such a bad video. We're not worried about this tech. And, you know, and, and here we are, it's it's gotten pretty bad. I mean, bad enough that that you're predicting we might actually have a, a political problem this year. And so, you know, for, for people that aren't familiar and haven't heard the term deep uh, deepfake, um, give us a quick, give us a little bit of history on like, where did this come from? And what is this technology? And then, um, you know, and then what is it that you're worried about from a use case perspective?
1: Totally. Yeah. I, I think it, it is a really important topic and it, it's one that is is important for there to be more kind of more of a public spotlight on. So just in terms of quick history, um deep fakes are really started to gain prominence in 2017. I would say late 2017. They're based on um, an, a pretty new neural network architecture called GANs, uh, generative adversarial networks that were invented, you know, just a few years before, probably 2014. Um, most people attribute them to Ian Goodfellow originally. Um, and their GANs are basically, a, you know, a novel approach to generative AI that enables you to, to, as you were talking about before, generate rather than just interpret data. Uh, and in, in 2017, deepfakes started to surface on the internet um, the original use case primarily was pornography, as as the, use, the original use cases for many new technologies. Um, and so, there there started to emerge, um, you know, basically doctored videos um, where either celebrities' faces were mapped on, or you know, individual people that people knew were mapped on uh, into pornographic videos. Um, and but it, but the technology has spread really widely since that really quickly, and the key enabler is that uh, it's possible today for basically anyone with a laptop and an internet connection to create relatively realistic looking deep fakes, um, both images and videos. And so if you just take a minute and stop and think about all the, the entire spectrum of possibilities, if it's possible for anyone to make realistic looking footage of someone saying or doing something that they didn't actually say or do, um, there's there's so much potential for abuse. And so, you know, as mentioned, it, it started in the world of pornography before long. It has, you know, it's it has found applications in particular in the political sphere. There have been a handful of of deepfake videos that were made that were kind of, you know, um, consciously created to to be to obviously be deep fakes but to raise awareness of the of the potential of the technology so there's a really famous one of president obama saying some ridiculous stuff that that went viral a year or two ago um but but much more concerningly and much more menacingly in the past year or so there have also been a couple real world examples of actual political situations where deep fakes played an important role and uh so far, not in the United States, but, uh, but they kind of serve as canaries in the coal mine that, that, that indicate, you know, the, the kind of negative outcome that could result. So one, one example comes from Gabon, a small country in Central Africa. Um, it's a really interesting, bizarre story, and, and there's lengthy uh, articles about it online. WIRE did a really good piece on it, but in a nutshell, uh, this the president of Gabon had not been seen for several months in person uh there were rumors that he was really sick or that he had died um and so finally you know according to the the president's group to to kind of quell these rumors that he wasn't well he appeared live in a televised address on new year's eve and he the video it's it's worth watching online i mean it he he there's something that ap- ap- appears a little bit off about him ty like it, it kind of looks like he looks a little plastic you could believe that it would it, that it is a it's, just, it, it's it's credible that it would be a deep fake and so basically after this address these rumors went viral that it was a deep fake that it was doctored it wasn't real and that he had died and that you know his his party was just deceiving the general public and it got serious enough that it led to an attempt a coup attempt uh which ultimately proved unsuccessful. But, but the, it was the first coup attempt in decades in Gabon. The military tried to overthrow the existing administration. Um, it turned out that the guy was, in fact, alive, and he's since been seen in public, and he's still, he's still the president there. But you know, no, no one knows for sure if it was a fake or if it wasn't. But just this, the possibility that you can generate real belief, real widespread belief that a, that a piece of media isn't real, or, or even just a doubt as to whether or not it's real, can have very real political consequences. So that's that was a small country off the radar of most Americans. Uh, but j- if you just think hypothetically about, you know, in the days leading up to an election, if a, if a deep fake went viral of a politician saying something really offensive uh, or saying something that alienated big chunks of the voting population, uh, you know, in just, in just the days before an election, even if eventually it became clear to everyone that it wasn't real, that it was a deep fake, e- even sowing that those seeds of doubt temporarily, especially in a world where so many people live online and in their own cocoon of, you know, their own echo chamber of, of what's real and what's not real. Um, you can imagine that ha- having re- very real uh, real world implications on the outcome of an election. Or, you know, just to give another example, imagine a deep fake of, uh, of the U.S. president. Imagine three months ago in the midst of President Trump and, and Kim Jong Un going back and forth on Twitter if there's a deep fake video of Trump saying that you know he was he was planning to launch nuclear weapons imminently against North Korea again these are all just hypothetical examples but you can imagine things spiraling out of control quickly and and the truth being hard to kind of track down so it's it's those kind of uh, downside scenarios that I worry about
0: Yeah no that makes a lot of sense and particularly with social media today it's very difficult to recall, um, you know, misinformation. I mean, I accidentally tweeted one time, I, I, I saw something on CNBC about, uh, I, it was something like, you know, it costs, um, it costs five cents to produce a penny or something by the U S mint. And I tweeted it out and a bunch of people tweeted back at me, Hey, that's actually not true. And here's a link. Uh, it was, you know, CNBC sort of hadn't checked that fact, but it got retweeted. I mean, 150 times, and when I issued a clarification, that didn't get retweeted 150 yep. times. Yep. Um, so you have that asymmetry to deal with. And so 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 when we're not going to be able to trust the media as much because of these technologies, um, and if you think about this from from an economic perspective, right? The economics of synthetic media, creating this stuff becomes cheaper and cheaper. More people do it, they do it for smaller reasons. Um what goes up in response what becomes more valuable and um you know and, and 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 is that how we should think about it as investors is is looking at the systems that are going to increase in value as, as 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 the cost to to create these videos drops
1: yeah yeah i mean i think the the interesting thing about synthetic media synthetic data you know ai more broadly and and really this is true of most technologies is that they're such a double-edged sword in the sense that, you know, they can cause widespread harm or create a lot of newfound value just depending on the application. So I, I think there, there is a lot that's really exciting about the, the notion of synthetic data, synthetic media, and there are a lot of positive use cases for it. And so I think at, at a high level, to your point around systems thinking, uh, the the kind of core value proposition of synthetic data is the notion that Rather than having to go out in the world and collect a bunch of data manually to then train your machine learning models, and, and then also you know label it by hand and prepare the prepare these data sets, um, you can generate on demand data sets basically tailor made for the for the needs that you have, and then train your models on them, um, and you can automatically generate data across all sorts of edge cases that would otherwise be really difficult to find in the real world. Um, You know, you can generate a big enough data set, you can generate the right kind of data. Um, And, and at this point, the, you know, the single most difficult and also the single most important part of building a good AI model is getting the right data. And so in a world where you can synthetically generate the data you need on demand, you can imagine just this tremendous democratizing effect where uh, it's there's no longer this massive value associated with proprietary data sets that some companies have that some com- that other companies will never have um, it really opens the door up to any sort of you know individual any sort of startup um, being able to build AI applications that they otherwise wouldn't be able to for lack of data We're a, we are not there today in terms of synthetic data manufacturer being at that level but but I think that democratizing effect is something that, that I get really excited about because it will just unleash so much more innovation.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because it seems like this is a step change function in what is capable in terms, you know, in, in, in terms of technology, similar to what the internet was, you know, 20 years ago. And so I'm curious when you, you know, you invest in sort of early stage and growth stage companies. When you think about how well the entrepreneurs in those companies sort of understand this intersection between new types of technology and the impact that it can have, um, it, you know, do they? I mean, or, or, or are you seeing people who are primarily interested in the technology and they're building things to just let people use for whatever? Or do they get the business implications of this? And then, and sort of a related question: Do you do you think from watching some of the the, the bigger companies and the executives that are there, do they understand? Uh, the the possibilities of this technology and and all the things that they could do with it.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's a really important question. Um, I, I guess a couple different thoughts. You know, I, I think both both you and I, as as early stage investors in in startups, uh, one of the kind of overarching uh, prerequisites that you that you need to find in in founders in order to back them it, it is uh individuals who are great technologists and are building novel cutting edge proprietary technology, but who are not building tech for tech sake, but rather have identified a concrete business use case, a concrete value proposition, and some way in which AI can enable them to address that that use case to solve a pain point to create value in a way that otherwise wasn't possible. So without that sort of well-defined concrete you know, ultimately ROI quantifiable use case. Um, it, you know, a, a startup I, a startup uh, approach is just not compelling. Um, so certainly that's, you know, it's, it's essential for uh, any AI entrepreneur or technologist to, to have that commercial orientation. And in terms of, to your question around, um, you know, bigger companies, to what extent is there realization and a- appreciation of, of some of these implications? I, I would say, you know, first of all, of course, it varies a lot company to company, I think I would say pretty much across the board, the sense that I've gotten from, from speaking with folks who are at some you know larger, call it sort of fortune 500 public companies, not necessarily cloud native, Silicon Valley native type organizations. I think pretty much across the board, there is a realization that artificial intelligence is real. Basically, no matter what industry I'm in, artificial intelligence is going to have really meaningful consequences for my business. Uh, and I can't afford to ignore it or to put my head in the sand. And it's something that I need to know about and my organization needs to be building its capabilities out around. Um, like just, just as one example, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time right now, uh, diligencing a company in the trucking sector. They're building a software platform for trucking and their platform has a machine learning component. And so I've been doing a lot of diligence calls with trucking fleet managers and trucking insurance folks. And these are people who are not, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, early adopter, Um, type folks. But every single person has a very keen appreciation that data-driven analytics is going to completely change their industry. So I think no matter what industry you're in, there is that appreciation. I think in terms of getting beyond that high-level appreciation to understanding some of the nuances of the technology, what is possible, and more importantly, what's not possible, that's a point on which I think you see a lot of variation. And, and even by industry, I think there's some variation. There are some industries that I would say are further along the curve. So I would point to financial services, I would point to healthcare and pharma as fields that comparatively speaking are pretty sophisticated in their use of data and in their understanding of machine learning techniques. And then other industries that are maybe lagging behind more um, and kind of on that adoption curve are a little bit further behind. So, so let's
0: go into this idea that um, that you're talking about, that a lot of people still aren't, aren't fully aware. They know this is important. Um, they're starting to pay attention. I believe we're still in the very early phases of AI adoption and even the earlier phases of people really understanding the impact that it can have and how to build businesses around AI technology and, and workflows and processes and all that. And I'm curious how... I mean, I've been doing this since since 2015. So so I'm, so I'm going on my sixth year since I made my first AI investment. Um, since I started writing about this stuff, and you were one of the first guys that I came across um, at a time when when most people were saying like, yeah, AI. There have been a lot of AI winters. We've heard this before. Don't waste your time. I'm really curious. Like, tell us a little bit first of all about uh, about your background. You know, and 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 how you got to Highland, and then. And then what made you interested in AI? What did you see that said this is not a flash in the pan, you know, fad that is going away, but this is something secular and long-term and transformational that that I want to get into and follow and understand?
1: Yep. Yeah, I, I remember reading your early newsletters back in 2015, 2016, and and uh, and they were great. So uh I'm glad that you that you started writing early and 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 have continued to do so. Um in terms of my journey into the field of AI, I really came at it via the world of autonomous vehicles. Um, I spent several years starting right around the same time that that you mentioned in that 2015 window, uh, deeply immersed in the world of autonomous vehicles. Uh, And my first experience actually was on the policy side. I did a brief stint in the White House during the Obama administration, working as a staffer, and basically the very earliest days of the federal government trying to figure out how to regulate autonomous vehicles. And it is definitely not a question that we resolved. I think the government is, frankly, is still thinking that through, but it was fascinating to be there in those early days. And, and it really just drove home for me just how transformative of a social and economic impact autonomous vehicles were going to have. Um, I was in grad school. Or I went to grad school right afterward at Harvard and got plugged in with the Highland guys uh, by one of my business school professors and started working with them on a part-time basis during grad school. Um, with a focus on investment opportunities in autonomous vehicles. So this was kind of that 2016-2017 timeframe that I'm sure many remember where there was just this Cambrian explosion of autonomous vehicle startups. Um, And so I spent time meeting as many of those companies as I could. Um, You know, both those companies developing the core AI stack for vehicle autonomy. So, you know, companies like Cruise or Newtonomy, which was a Highland investment, or Zooks, But then also all, all sorts of uh, technology layers around the autonomous vehicle stack. So simu- what we called at the time, simulation, which is now the, the phrase synthetic data has become more common um, or cybersecurity for autonomous vehicles or 3D mapping. Um, a lot of the sensors required to enable vehicle autonomy. Um, and so it w- was really immersed in that startup ecosystem. And then uh, after grad school, went to went and joined one of those startups. I, I helped lead the strategy team at Zoox for a couple of years in the Bay Area. Which uh, was one of the most exciting AV startups, at least at least I thought at the time, uh, has since been acquired. It was acquired last year by Amazon for a little bit over a billion dollars, um, which I think is an awesome landing place for the team. Um, but spent a couple years at Zooks, and you know, c- could not have been a, a more awesome experience in that sort of in those few years where the AV industry was really starting to accelerate. Um, and and frankly, there were there were a few years there, and I think this is still true to some extent where. A lot of the best machine learning talent in the world was sucked into the autonomous vehicle industry because that's where a that's where a lot of the dollars were flowing and b it was just such a compelling use case uh, and such a compelling you know uh problem to be working on so having spent several years in the world of autonomous vehicles i then a couple years ago transitioned uh full-time to highland and spend pretty much all my time at highland looking at investment opportunities in machine learning um, but unlike my, my kind of pre-Highland life, I'm, I'm no longer focused specifically on autonomous vehicles. And, and I, you know, I see the, the field of autonomous vehicles as kind of the first really massive commercial application of AI that attracted widespread funding. And as a result, a lot of the core enabling underlying technologies uh, in the world of machine learning, you know, whether that's computer vision, whether that's synthetic data, you know, all sorts of robotics and uh, 3D spatial maneuvering were developed and advanced in the world of autonomous vehicles, but over the past few years have begun to spill over and find applications in all sorts of other industries. So that's kind of where I spend my time today is looking across industries, across categories, and finding the most compelling commercial use cases and applications for this technology kind of across categories, whether that's in healthcare or in agriculture or in construction, you know, or in various other industries.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, So I want to get back to uh, some of the some of the other predictions that you made uh, in your Forbes article, which I found really interesting. Um, You and I both looked a lot at this MLOps category, which is sort of like DevOps, uh, which which manages a lot of cloud infrastructure, but but for machine learning tools and workflows. Uh, you predicted this category will undergo a massive consolidation. And this is actually something I've been thinking a lot about as well and trying to figure out where we as a firm sort of place some of our bets. Um, talk about the need for MLOps. Why, why is this a new category? Why isn't it just an extension of, of DevOps? And, um, and, and, and why do you think it's going to start to consolidate?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I'll briefly lay out kind of the uh... The big picture thesis around MLOps, and then and then to your point, why I see it beginning to undergo a process of consolidation. So the high-level idea, as you said, is that you know there there have been many multi-billion dollar businesses built that create tools for software development. You know, think of Atlassian, think of GitHub, think of HashiCorp. There's there's a lot of other examples. And, you know. VCs like to use the phrase picks and shovels to refer to these types of businesses, companies that are building the tools and infrastructure to enable software development at scale. Um, Machine learning is a totally different paradigm of software development. It's a totally different workflow. The activities look completely different. The requirements look totally different. Rather than writing a lot of lines of code manually as a human programmer, the, the job of developing machine learning models is much more oriented around collecting, curating, cleaning data, organizing data, and then preparing models with the right parameters and so forth to learn from that data itself. But at the end of the day, the, the model is learning the rules it will follow and learning the, you know, the quote programming it will follow rather than a human programmer writing them. So the, just the, the flow of activities looks completely different. And correspondingly, there's a need for a new generation of developer tools to facilitate and streamline that, that process in the world of machine learning, and because AI is a relatively nascent field still, uh, a mature ecosystem of tools doesn't yet exist, and that represents a massive opportunity for companies for new companies to come and build you know the Atlassian of, of the machine learning era or the GitHub of the machine learning era and uh, and, and so correspondingly you 've seen a massive wave of ml tools and infrastructure startups emerging over the past three or so years more recently the, this term ml ops has has started getting traction, which is i think which is a useful catch all phrase for the category but um, you can think of if you think of the overall machine learning development pipeline, there are a lot of different stages, and there are some companies that have built specialized point solutions to solve pain points in really particular areas of that overall pipeline so for instance, there are companies. Who are focused specifically on hyperparameter optimization and and solving that one part of the overall prop, larger problem of building a machine learning model? Or there are some companies that focus just on data labeling and helping you make sure that you have you have data sets that are properly labeled. There are some companies that have built products that are just oriented around experiment management, uh, basically uh, you know version control for the for the era of machine learning. Um, and then you also have uh, in addition to those more point solution oriented companies, you have companies that are seeking to build more end to end platforms um, that sort of span the entire machine learning workflow cycle and can streamline, facilitate, in some cases, abstract away the complexities of building a machine learning model and, and systematize it. And so, you know, an, one early mover here that many people are familiar with is Data Robot. Um, Databricks is, you know, plays in, in a similar category as well. Most of the major cloud vendors like AWS uh, has a product called SageMaker that, that sort of serves that function. So there's a huge amount of activity. There's a huge amount of AI talent being drawn to this area. There's a lot of really exciting startups. Uh, frankly, there's more startups than anyone can keep track of these days in this category. Uh, it really is just, you know, there's a massive proliferation of, of ML ops companies, because the need is very real, the market timing feels perfect. And, and you know, there's a really compelling value proposition for it. So that kind of gets to why I see there being a consolidation. And at the end of the day, um, you know, there are not all of these MLOps companies that are emerging today are going to go on to be large standalone businesses. In fact, most of them won't. Um, it just doesn't, there's just not enough room in the market to support, you know, hundreds or thousands of different machine learning tools at scale. And so I anticipate that a lot of these startups, in particular ones who are building really specialized point solutions for a particular part of the overall pipeline, getting acquired and getting tucked into some of these broader platforms. And so there's a couple examples that have already happened. So I mentioned hyperparameter optimization as kind of one really specific area that you see, that you see some startups focusing on. There was a company called SigOpt um, that was really laser focused on that um, and had tried to broaden their offering, but that was kind of their core use case. They got acquired by Intel last year to be rolled up into into a broader platform on Intel's part. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think you're going to see some of these big players. And I would name in particular, like the cloud vendors, AWS, Microsoft, Google Cloud, as well as some of the really large, uh, you know, truly scaled Newer entrants like Databricks, like DataRobot, um, starting to buy some of these smaller folks and, and tuck them in. Whether it's uh, whether it's solutions around you know parts of the data prep, part of the workflow. Whether it's solutions around AI explainability. Whether it's solutions around uh, post deployment monitoring. Some of these some of these like elements of the overall flow. I think you'll start seeing a lot of consolidation and in, in a handful of players. It certainly is. It will not be a winner take all market, but. A more consolidated group of companies that are sort of the leading ML tools companies will start to emerge.
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think we've seen a similar thing in you know looking at these companies and trying to figure out because there are many features that an ML ops package or tool needs at the end of the day, and you know I think the people that that get biggest the fastest by building the most important pieces of those workflows. We'll be able to consolidate some of the other pieces. So, um, yeah. So I, I definitely expect that to play out as well. Um, I want to wrap up with one of the last predictions that you made, and and one that I personally have struggled the most to evaluate, um, even though I gr- agree with it. It's this idea that biology will continue to gain momentum as the hottest and most transformative area to which apply ma- for which to apply machine learning now. When I have looked at this space, I totally agree that anything that has the kind of complexity that biology has uh, but can be understood on a low level if you, you know, dig down enough, uh, this is a great use case for machine learning. Right, Write the rules, show the data, let the machines figure out the interactions and understand it at scale. I think the, the thing that I keep coming back to is what do you do if you are able to build one of these platforms? Right, Do you Do you sell your technology to the pharma companies or license it to them? It's a relatively concentrated market. So, um, you know, you have to make sure you can get the right price point. Maybe you get an early acquisition. You know, I don't know. Do you become a pharma company yourself using the technology that you've invented? And now you have a uh, a competitive advantage against, you know, the traditional big pharma. Um, Do you form joint ventures with big pharma and take your money on, uh, on the drug side, yeah, talk talk a little bit about this biology thesis, and then talk a little bit about the the business models that you anticipate arising from this that are going to be most successful.
1: Yep, yeah. So I'll, I'll start by saying I'm I'm not a biologist by training either. There are a lot of folks who are much deeper in this category than I am, but but I share your enthusiasm. And, and basically, I I have increasingly developed conviction that the co- the application of computational methods and especially machine learning to human biology is just going to unlock so much possibility and so much value creation in the years ahead. And, and it's at a fundamental level, it's for the reason that you laid out, which is basically that the human body is really a lot of very complex algorithms working together. And it's, it's an incredibly complex system. Um, But at its core DNA is, you know, if, if, if digital computers are operate on, on a binary Set of of instructions, zeros and ones. DNA is basically defined by you know four potential states, um, and so th- it, there there really is a lot of analog between digital computing and, and human biology. and And to this point, our human human humanities tools have not been sophisticated enough to unlock a lot of the secrets of biology, but we are starting to make incredible progress there um, by just being able to throw massive amounts of computational power and clever neural network algorithms at, at problems. Uh, and so w- one use case that's get, that gets a lot of buzz and probably is the most, the most well-funded, the most focused on application at this intersection of, of computation and biology is uh, AI-driven drug discovery. Um, so being able to identify new compounds that, uh, you know, do, that lead to positive outcomes in humans using machine learning to crunch a huge amount of data. And, and so this gets to your question of, okay, I, you know, I can understand conceptually how AI might unlock all sorts of new insights into how the human body works and lets us, as a result, develop compounds that, you know, that, that make us healthier, that make us uh, more powerful on various dimensions. But what does the actual business model look like for monetizing that? And I think the answer is basically, I think it's easy to state, but really difficult to execute on. And most drug discovery companies that I've met uh, are thinking along these lines in one way or the other, which is that uh, at the end of the day, the biological assets that are developed are the pot of gold here. And the, the thing that really represents the most value, and we, we just finished talking about the picks and shovels for machine learning tools and how that's kind of an interesting business model. And I think in a lot of areas, I, I really like the picks and shovels model and sort of providing tools to those who are building applications. I think in this use case picks and shovels are actually a much less appealing go to market so at the end of the day if you if you build a system if you build a a a machine that's able to generate really novel insights about you know which compounds which which drugs could be really valuable the the most worthwhile way to capture that value is to actually own the asset yourself now obviously why I say it's easy to say but difficult to execute on is that bringing a new drug, a new pharmaceutical drug to market is insanely capital intensive. I think on average, it's $2.6 billion per new drug developed. It takes several years. I think the average is 10 years. You know, you have to go through all this preclinical development. You have to go through FDA phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, it's, it's an undertaking that is not realistic for a new startup necessarily to attack. And so that, that kind of uh, asymmetry between the fact that the compound itself is where the value is and and what people are going to be willing to pay for but the 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 cost of bringing new compounds to market is so high that's kind of led to this this challenge that all ai that most biology ai companies are grappling with and you see companies handling it in different ways some are taking the approach of just trying to build a tool basically that they you know almost you can think of like SaaS, that they're licensing to pharma companies. Pharma companies can kind of tap into their AI secret sauce and use it to develop. Um, I think that most startups don't see that as the long-term path because you just there's just not that much willingness to pay relative to the size of the prize if you actually use the, use a system to create a novel compound. So the the next kind of most common approach you see are startups doing joint ventures of some sort with large pharma companies. And pretty much every major pharma company today is thinking really actively about how to apply AI to improve drug drug discovery. And almost all of them have partnerships with some of these cutting edge AI drug discovery startups. And so you're seeing, you know, and there's all sorts of ways you can structure the economics, but it basically amounts to a joint venture and a revenue share where the pharma companies are able to provide the manufacturing capabilities, the capital, a lot of the overhead, and just the know-how of how to bring a new compound to market. Uh, and the AI startups are providing, you know, the, the core new technology, and then I, I think most of these new AI startups, their their long term vision is to is to own their own pipeline and assets of new drugs and to bring them to market themselves, and and to be kind of the next generation of big pharma companies. Obviously, not all of them will make that transition, but I think I think most agree that's kind of the most desired end state if you can actually capture that whole piece of the pie. Um, And it'll be interesting to watch unfold. Another one of the predictions that I made in in that list that we haven't talked about is, um, I expect this to be a pretty acquisitive space. So I I would expect some of these big pharma companies to acquire some of these startups that they're currently partnering with and basically bring that technology in house. And I think the price, uh, I think the price of some of those acquisitions could get pretty hefty because the the stakes are just so high. Um, But it'll be an interesting area to watch for sure.
0: Yeah. This is a fascinating topic. I mean, we could do a whole hour or two just probably on the intersection of AI and biology. And so, um, you know, I actually probably have some guests on some, some future programs to do that because I think it is, is so deep. So um, anyway, uh, I know we could keep talking, you know, for probably another hour or two, but, but we do need to wrap up. So Rob Toes Highland Capital, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, everybody who's listening, thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to email us if you have any, any questions or guests we should have on things you'd like us to cover. Uh, please, you know, like us on, on, on the podcast apps, send them to your friends. If you, uh, if you like what you hear, um, and please go listen to the rest of our episodes. We'll see you next time.